to be honest, I don't feel like preaching very much after that worship. I was just like, can we just carry on? <laughs> but I want to take you to 1940s. Oh, time travel with me. In Chicago, there's a, a church pastor and he's boarding a train. And he's, he's getting on this train. He's accepted a preaching invitation to this place called McAllen in Texas. So if you're not good with your American geography, you've got Chicago way up north and you've got McAllen, Texas right on the border of Mexico, right down deep in the corner of America. And it's, it's a long train journey. It's like 1,500 miles. And back in the 1940s, it's going to take him a long time. So he boards the train. And as he's getting on, he... he feels like he's got this really heavy burden on his heart. He's just, something is just in his spirit, he's just, oh my goodness, this is, this is a lot going on. And this isn't unusual for this guy. He's, he's pretty used to feeling burdened, and he, he normally gets it off his chest by preaching, but every now and then, when the burden feels this great and this heavy, he thinks, right, it's time to get out my pen and paper and write it down is a guy where his, his life is marked by a closeness to God through prayer. Now, this is the 1940s, and they, preachers tended to wear suits, and they'd have their little office in the church. And if people came to, to meet with him in his office, they would find him normally top half suited, bottom half these ragged old trousers. And they'd think, what on earth? And he used to call them his prayer pants, because he didn't want to like, crease up his nice suit, which he had to commute in and out of work in. He wanted something where he could just get on his knees every day. And it, the knees were wearing thin. You get that picture that this guy spent a lot of time in prayer. And his life was marked by these experiences that he'd had with God. But anyway, he's on this train. And with no formal training, no high school education, nothing like that, no theological college, he puts pen to paper and writes the whole journey, the whole, all 1,500 miles, through the night, he writes. And as he gets off the train in McAllen, Texas, he has the first draft of this book, The Pursuit of God, Adam Wilson Tozer. And this book has sold millions of copies. Has anyone here read it? Stick your hand up if you've read this book. Okay, well... We've got Jeff and we've got Richard, so the rest of you, you've got something for your reading list now, because this book is phenomenal. Yeah, I mean, there's, John chose probably the most hardy quote from it to put on the front of the news sheet this week, which really does, yeah, challenge and inspire at the same time. But this book, I've, I've read it, I've started rereading it, and, and to be honest, there's bits of it that are wonderful, and there's bits of it that just get at me, and you're just like, goodness me, that is... Oh, oh, that's just too much for me to read. And it's had a profound effect on Christians throughout the world. Many people have, have that one on their reading list as like, this is like a must read. If you want to pursue God with your whole being, that is a book to start with. And that's why we've called the series The Pursuit of God. There's, I, I just want to reflect briefly on last week, because last week... I don't know about you, but there was, there was something different going on. There was just something inspiring, something wonderful that I think the Spirit was doing amongst us. And I just get that sense that it, it was 
something like a one of those, okay, we're starting 2020, but this is a, a, a rod in the stone to go. We're moving forward from this point. And I think God's got a deeper call for us. So bear with me on this one because I don't want this to come across like um, harsh, but I mean, Tozer could probably do me one on that. So this, this is going to be my, my take on... Because we're going to look at some of the practices in the coming weeks when we're talking about the pursuit of God. We're going to look at prayer, we're going to look at generosity, we're going to look at sort of God's pacing for our lives and accountability. But before we can get to that, there's a principle that I kind of want to unpack this morning called divided desires. Because if the desire of our heart isn't God, none of the other practices matter. If, the, if our heart isn't right and if our priorities are out of whack it's it's really not going to make much difference having some great teaching on great topics because our hearts won't want to follow so that's what i'm looking at and our hearts are messed up places oh i tell you like i'll let you in on a secret there are some dark corners in my heart that every now and then god it shines his light in and i go oh i did not realize that was there i did not realize that amount of ego was there. I did not realize that amount of selfishness was there. I did, not, I did not realize I was like that inside. And it's a gracious light. It's not like a spotlight that then makes me just like want to... It, it makes me want to deal with it with the gracious, loving Father. The only way I can describe this to you in a way that you might understand is my car. right? So our car, we have four kids, as you know. It's filthy. It is... Like, every now and then, every few months, I have to get the hoover out and go and deal with the car, right? And in the crevices and the nooks and crannies of the car, I will find the weirdest things, the most dirty and horrible things that you could imagine. Like, this shouldn't be like And it makes me get angry. It makes me, like, why is there a Christingle underneath your seat? Like, it makes no sense at all. But, like, that's what our car's like. Like, you open a little cubbyhole and there's half a sandwich shoved in it. Like, I don't understand. And every time I go, they're never eating in the car again. They're never, ever eating in the car again. The other day, I had to literally get a wipe and wipe away a cake that had been stuck with the icing down. You get the picture. We don't clean our car very often. (laughs) But that's not the point. The point is that there are bits in our hearts where this junk resides, and we don't fully want to give our, our all to God. There are some wonderful bits of our hearts. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying your heart is full to the brim like my car, but it's... It's a difficult thing, our hearts. And it's the, the goodness of God is that he doesn't expose it all at once. He doesn't weigh you down with the entire burden of your divided heart at once. He'll deal with it bit by bit by bit. And it is, it's a gracious, loving God who does that on a lifelong journey. There's, there's an old adage that you were saved when you heard the gospel. You are being saved throughout your entire life. And then when he comes again, we will be fully saved and redeemed. And it's just a joy to know that we get that experience of going on that lifelong walk with him. So where do we start then? If our hearts are truly divided, where do we start? I want to pick up on a Tozer's quotes from near the start of the book. It says this, Come near to the holy men and women of the past, And you'll soon feel the heat of their desire after God. They mourned for him. 
They prayed and wrestled and sought for him day and night, in season and out. And when they had found him, the finding was all the sweeter for the long-seeking. Draw near to the holy men and women of faith and you'll feel the heat of their desire after God. If we want to be inspired, we do need to look at, like, have you ever met someone and their faith just inspires you and they, they just, oh, there's something about them. I don't know who it is for you. Like sometimes I read like a Francis Chan book and I can feel the heat of his desire. Or maybe it's a Jackie Pullinger or a Billy Graham or a Tozer, somebody like that. Or maybe it's when you read the Bible and you kind of come across these characters and you've got Moses, that guy who went on that walk with God and got to a point where he had seen so much God, more than anyone else, and yet he could still ask God, show me your glory. And he was in that place where his heart was so given to God that God then came and, by the grace of him, showed him his glory and he didn't die. Maybe it's a Ruth where it says, like, where you go, I will go, and your God will be my God, that kind of desire. Maybe it's a Paul who... I mean, I could pick any one of Paul's kind of verses where it's like everything else, I count it as rubbish compared to knowing you. Or like, oh, he just, he just, ah. You see what I mean? He has that heat of desire after God. Maybe it's David. And that's who I want to focus on this morning. David, a man whose heart was after God. And we're going to look at Psalm 63 as, I mean, I think the Psalms overflow with that desire and that passion more than any other book. They, they capture it. It's song. Song is like that and poems are like that. And, and the Psalms really do overflow. But Psalm 63, back in, I mean, we're going way back beyond the 1940s, back to the early church fathers. And apparently, they decreed that no day should pass without Psalm 63 being sung publicly. That's how much they they thought this psalm just sums it up. This guy called John Chrysostom, around 400 AD, said this, The spirit and soul of the whole book of Psalms is contracted into this psalm, Psalm 63. So that's kind of why I picked it, and I've got a find it here now. I'm, I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation. I'm going to read through it, and then there's four characteristics that I've kind of picked up that show us not what divided desire looks like, which is where we are, but what undivided desire looks like, so that we can really measure ourselves against something that is so much more beautiful and wonderful and the way we should be aiming to be. So Psalm 63 says this, O God, you are my God. I earnestly search for you. My soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you in this parched and weary land where there is no water. I've seen you in your sanctuary and gazed upon your power and glory. Your unfailing love is better to me than life itself. How I praise you. I will honour you as long as I live, lifting up my hands to you in prayer. You satisfy me more than the richest of foods. I will praise you with songs of joy. I lie awake thinking of you, meditating on you through the night. I think how much you have helped me. I sing for joy in the shadow of your protecting wings. I follow close behind you. Your strong right hand holds me securely. 
But then those plotting to destroy me will be, be ruined. They will go down into the depths of the earth. They will die by the sword and become the food of jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who trust in him will praise him while liars will be silenced. So let's get into the background of Psalm 63, which I think will help us. So Psalm 63 is a psalm of David, and he's writing it in the Judean wilderness, which is a barren, dry place. And the reason that he's ended up in this barren and dry place is that his son, Absalom, is leading a rebellion and wants to kill his dad. And I think we can all relate to that. No? He's had to leave the palace, he's had to leave his throne, he's had to leave all of it behind. The things he's been anointed for when he was a child, and he finally gets, after he's running around in the desert, I mean, he's done this before, this isn't the first time he's found himself in the desert, and he writes this psalm. And the, the kind of four characteristics that I find that it show that he's got this undivided, raw and passionate desire for God... The first one is what I'd call soul thirst. Soul thirst. And I think that kind of taps into what John was talking about last week, that that really is down deep. It's it's unquenchable, this thirst of the soul after God. And it's, it's the way that it starts. Oh God, you are my God. This isn't, oh God, you are the God. This is, you're my God. God. It starts in that close relationship place with God, and his soul begins to thirst after him. Think about some of the other Psalms. Psalm 42, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. I'm just going to read a a few more verses, because I think the... I heard Pete Gregg talking about it not that long ago, and he said that this should be to the tune of sort of heavy metal, rather than sort of Bambi music as we sing it. Julie's given the thumbs up. She's agreeing with the heavy metal version. So if we could do that as a response song, Johnny, that would be fantastic. Um, As the deer pants for streams of water, so I long for you, O God. I thirst for God, the living God. When can I come and stand before him day and night? I have only tears for food while my enemies continually taunt me, saying, where is this God of yours? My soul thirsts for God. And that is the first indicator of an undivided desire. Something strange about um, the desire of God is that the the more you experience God, the more you want of him. It's, It's like this thing that you can never be, you're never fully satisfied, but you are so satisfied at the same moment. It's just incredible. And then there's this quote from St. Augustine which says, Thou hast rubbed salt on my lips that I might thirst for thee. Let me say that again. Thou hast rubbed salt on my lips that I might thirst for thee. You know that whole thing where they put bar snacks out? I don't think they do it as much anymore. They want to charge you five quid for a pot of nuts. But They used to put bar snacks out so that you'd get salty and need another drink. It's like that. God, put salt on our lips that we might thirst after you. The second thing is there is a deep satisfaction. Although you are incredibly thirsty, and I mean, look at it, he says, my soul thirsts for you, my whole body longs for you in this parched and weary land where there is no water. I mean, he's writing this in a desert 
where it is parched and weary land. But he, has, he goes on and he talks about this deep satisfaction he has. I have seen you in your sanctuary and gazed upon your power and glory. Your, lo- your unfailing love is better to me than life itself. How I praise you. I will honor you as long as I live, lifting up my hands to you in prayer. You satisfy me more than the richest of foods. I'll praise you with songs of joy. This is David who's probably had the richest of foods available being the king. This is David in the middle of a desert. This is David who's left the palace. This is David who is able to say somehow that you are better to me than life itself. It doesn't matter the rest of the things going on around us. God is so much better than any of it. And the pursuit of God is finding that level of thirst for him and deep satisfaction with him and only him. And you know what? The idea of a pursuit sounds hard. I don't know about you. I'm not a big fan of running. I find it hard work. And pursuit sounds to me quite hard work. And there's a language as well in there of unquenchable hunger and thirst. And to be honest, to most of us, that is a completely alien concept. If we're thirsty, we turn on the tap. If we're hungry, we open the fridge. Do you know what I mean? There's, there's that idea of unquenchable thirst. Just It's a foreign concept, and it sounds horrible. Like, I'm very thankful that I can turn on the tap and there's water. It's needed, it's necessary, and everyone in the world should have that. But there is a reality that it sounds horrible. And, and if this is the picture that we've got, that we're to be having that unquenchable thirst, then quite often we mistake it by saying, like, oh, but if I give up all these good things that I've got, then my life's going to be rubbish and boring. I mean, hello. <laughs> This is God. God is way better than life itself. If there's anything lurking in your heart that God reveals to you, it's worth getting rid of. It doesn't matter what it is. It's worth getting rid of. There's a psalm that gets misquoted quite a lot. And it's that psalm which says, God will give you the desires of your heart. The problem is it doesn't say that. We like to pray it quite often, like, God, you, you give us the desires of our heart. God, we really need that new car or that new whatever it is. Like, whatever it is, God will give you the desires of your heart. That's not the context at all. The verse says this. It says, delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Delight in the Lord. I don't know about you, when I delight in something, I want more of that thing. Like, we've discovered this amazing chocolate, and it is delightful. And there's two more bars of it in the cupboard because it's that good. Okay, Tony's Chocoloni. Tony's Chocoloni, everyone make a note, it's very nice. Um, But (laughs) Paul's scribbling notes. Um, But when we delight in something, we want more of that thing. We want more of that thing, 
And therefore, the desire of our heart becomes that thing. So we get this weird paradox where, or this feedback loop where our hearts are delighting in God, our hearts want more of God, and he gives us the desire of our hearts, which is more of himself. And it just goes round and round and round. And that is the way that God gives you the desires of your heart. It's not for the things you need, but it's for him that you need above all else. And that's where we find the deep satisfaction. And that deep satisfaction in this psalm overflows into the the singing and the praises and the worship. And I think a lot of us, we're there. So much, I mean, this morning we were singing praises to God because our hearts are satisfied and finding so much joy in him. But I still believe there is more to God because he is infinite and that's why he can always give more of himself. And that there's always more of him to, to think. I, there's another quote in here. I wasn't going to use it, but I've got to find it now. Where is it? Okay, it is, however, not an end but an inception. For now begins the glorious pursuit, the heart's happy exploration of the infinite riches of the Godhead. That is where we begin, I say. But where we stop, no man has yet discovered. For there is in the awful and mysterious depths of the triune God neither limit nor end. Just get a copy of this book. Like, I mean, Amazon's going to be sold out after this service, I'm sure. But there is no limit or end to God. The satisfaction we can find can only be enhanced by pursuing him more. If we get to that point where we think we've got it down and we're a mature Christian and we, we don't need to pursue any longer, I'd just like to challenge you on that and say that is not true. The pursuit is lifelong and it's full of joy. The next bit that I find is full attention. Now, attention is something that I've read about quite a lot recently, and um, I've just been like, it's one of those ones, you know, sometimes for a period, God speaks to you on something, like He keeps bringing it up over and over again, and attention is the one that God keeps talking to me about. And I had this thing, and I, this isn't like out of the Bible, this is just thoughts from me, but I'm going to go with it anyway. You know there's that saying that possession is nine-tenths of the law. So like nine-tenths of the stuff in the law is to do with the possession of things or people or whatever. I mean, I don't know how true that is, but it's a saying, possession is nine-tenths of the law. I had this feeling... And again, I don't know how true this is. I haven't done the metrics or the statistics or whatever. But what if attention is nine-tenths of worship? What if attention is nine-tenths of worship? That when we, when we sing together to worship to God, we're turning our attention to him and only him. When we gather in this place and we turn our hearts towards God, we're, we're giving him our attention. When we serve the poor for the sake of the glory and the kingdom of God, we're giving him our attention. And a lot of our lives we live distracted and we wonder why the kingdom of God isn't breaking in at every moment. It's because he doesn't have or hold our full attention. There are so many things that distract us and cause us to not just give him everything. And attention is one. Let me put it this way. Have you ever lied awake at night 
and something's been on your mind and it's been going round and round and round and round. Everyone has. I'm pretty sure that unless you're like, I don't know, a subscriber to Nightall, like, there's things keeps up. I bet somebody in here or multiple people in here were awake some point this week with the wind blowing thinking, I wonder if that fence is going to fall down. Do you know what I mean? Like there's, there's things that keep us up at night. But I don't know how often have you lied there awake just because God has gripped your attention. God has gripped your attention so much that before you sleep, you just can't get there because your soul is thirsting after him. It's a strange one. But it's what David says, I lie awake thinking of you, meditating on you through the night. God has got his full attention. God has got his full attention. He's thirsting for him. He is pursuing him. I think how, you, how much you have helped me. This is, God saying, this is David saying, God, I think how much you have helped me, yet I'm in a desert being hunted by my son. It makes no sense. I think how much you have helped me. I sing for joy in the shadow of your protecting wings. I don't know if I would had to leave the palace and ended up in a desert hiding in a cave with the, the, the people that were loyal to me. I don't know how much I'd be saying that was singing for joy in the shadow of your protecting wings. And it gets to verse 8. And verse 8, I love. It says, I follow close behind you. Your strong right hand holds me securely. What I love about it is if you read it in the King James Version, which is a strange one for me. I mean, there's lots of these and thous, and I don't quite get it half the time. But it says, My soul followeth hard after thee. Oh, my soul followeth hard after thee. This picture of sort of clinging to God as God moves, and we just want to go with him. We will not let him out of our sight. He has our full attention, our full grasp, and he is going somewhere, and we can be with him because his right hand upholds you. So as you cling to him, he's already holding you. It's a strange image, but it's the image of being saved where we call out to God, but only because he's already called us. Again, one of those weird tension points where we can't, in our own minds, comprehend the wisdom of God in it. But my soul followeth hard after thee. So if he has our full attention, that gives us something else, which is the fourth bit of it. Right perspective. I don't know about you, but nothing shifts my priorities when I, lose, like, when I lose perspective. If I lose perspective on what I'm doing, my priority shift get put out of whack and it just doesn't work. Sometimes we need to like, take a step back. I, Christmas break was great because I had a, a nice long break after Christmas. And you can come back into work and you've kind of got a lot more perspective because you've, you've stepped back from it. Maybe you're thinking about something you think, if I have a night's sleep, I'll get a good bit of perspective on that, and in the morning I can make a decision. It's just good, common knowledge. But the perspective that gets given to David as he 
is in this place is something amazing. Because I, I don't know about you, have you ever struggled with the Psalms? You've been reading the Psalms and then there's some really angry bits. Like, they fly... I mean, there's some verses that we would never use in church because just, you don't... You, no. <laughs> like, <laughs> you wrote that in a mood, David. <laughs> like, what is it? But this bit, I don't get that tone from it. I don't get that same anger or... Do you know what I mean? It's, but those plotting to destroy me will come to ruin. They will go down into the depths of the earth. They will die by the sword and become the food of jackals. But the king will rejoice in God, that's himself. And all who trust in him will praise him, while liars will be silenced. It's just quite matter of fact. I mean, if you read some of the other Psalms, you realise that that's a toned back, matter of fact kind of judgment. And it's that right perspective that, that David has managed to get. That by giving God his full attention, being completely satisfied with him, the rest of his life, the situation with Absalom, I mean, I've made light of it. He was being hunted. He was being, he'd been kicked out. This was full-on rebellion by his own son who wanted to kill him. And yet, this isn't David having a rage, which he could have easily done. This wasn't David declaring horrible things, which he has done. This is just him saying, they're plotting to destroy me. They will come to ruin. Why? Why does he know that? Because he's in the protecting wings of God. And for us, what does that, what does that bit mean? Because like the rest of it, I can kind of see. I can kind of see like lying awake at night, my soul thirsty after God. But what, what does that bit mean? And I think the picture of it really is there's evil stuff at play. In the world, in the spiritual realm, whatever you want to call it, there is evil stuff at play that wants to distract you beyond belief away from God, that wants to lead you in ways that, that do you damage, that, that mean that you can't give your full, undivided desire to God. They'll do everything, everything at their disposal to just stop you engaging with God. And perspective puts that into its rightful place where it just says, actually, God's got this. The situation I find myself in, no matter how pressurized, God is still on the throne. His right hand is still holding me. I can still follow if hard after him. Soul first, deep satisfaction, full attention and right perspective. My desire certainly doesn't match up to that. As much as I want it to, my desire is not there yet. And by the grace of God, I ask him that he would do a work in my life, that it would become like that. Ask yourself that question. Is my desire like that? Do I have a soul thirst after God where it gets to Monday morning and I'm just... ah? Uh, no, I, I don't know. I don't know where you're at. But I just long for God's power of his spirit to rub salt on our lips that we might become thirsty for him, that that desire might never stop, that we might pursue him. Ask yourself each of those four areas. What's my soul first like? Where's my satisfaction found? 
Where's my attention? And how's my perspective on the whole of life? No, I mean, nothing puts your life into perspective like, I don't know, the loss of a loved one or a medical situation that's unexpected. All of a sudden, like, the things of everyday life, just get rid of them. It doesn't matter. What matters is your relationship with God, your experience with God, and your pursuit of God. I mean, we are measuring ourselves up against David, right? And, like, he's pretty boss when it comes to the Bible. He's, like, not, not just, like, a side character, But still, even if we're measuring it up against David, I believe it's possible. I do believe it's possible. There's this phrase that, to do with desire and our our divided desires, it says misdirected love leads to misdirected lives. When we love the wrong things, our lives go in the wrong direction. And David has, I mean... A-class experience in misdirected love. If you don't remember it, David, Bathsheba, Uriah. So David's on the rooftop and he sees a beautiful lady taking a bath. I don't know why she was taking a bath on a roof. I don't know. David shouldn't have been looking though. That is, that's for sure, right? But he falls in love with her. I mean, we did this story this week over breakfast with our kids. Think of that what you will. Um, so David's looking out from the palace. He sees Bathsheba. He falls in love with her. her. Her husband's away fighting for him. He gets her pregnant. He then gets Uriah killed. Everyday stuff again, you know. All of us facing like the rebellion from our children and the... This is David. And he screwed up in a massive way. So the fact that he's got to... That was before this psalm was written, okay? Just so you get the timeline of David right. That was before this. And I think he may have learned his lesson to give God his undivided attention, desire, and love. Because misdirected love does lead to a misdirected life. So how can we correct our desires, our divided desires? I'm coming close to the end, right? We got a word at the weekend away, not the one about getting in the starting blocks and going after God, which I think might relate to the pursuit of God. But there was a word about give yourselves away. Give yourselves away. For the sake of the community around us, for the sake of people that don't know Jesus yet, give yourself away. The first thing you have to give away is yourself, is your heart. You have to give it completely to God. That's where it starts. The more I thought about it, there's no way God can give us away to the community if we haven't already given ourselves to God in a way that is reckless, in a way that doesn't seem possible. We have to give our hearts to God. It requires that kind of complete surrender. You think about that story from last week, the Hebrides story, where the, the revival broke out. Those two old ladies, they had given up their sleep, And I think that is possibly the most valuable thing a human has ever been given by God. (laughs) Because they gave up their sleep to pray. They'd just been laying down their lives. So, Like that thirst for him to come and do something was so great. 
And if we want God to do I don't know what that looks like for a place like Coney Hall or West Wickham or Bromley or whatever. I don't know what it looks like. But I think God wants to do something. Call me mad, but I think he wants to do something quite significant. I long for him to do something significant. And I don't think it means people just falling over in the street, although that would be fun. Us charismatics and Pentecostals would really love it. We might even go and lay a little sheet over them and pray for them. Like, <laughs> what does it look like for just an everyday revival to take place? Where it isn't just like, all oh, up there in the hoodie-doos, like, where it's just really earthy and really dirty and really similar to the way Jesus came and did it when he walked this earth. Just in amongst the mess of real world. And if we really want to see that happen, he has to have our complete attention, our desire, our thirst, it all. And when I say it has to be submitted to God, I'm not saying you have to get rid of it all. That's not what I'm saying. You've got to hear this one really clearly because we think sometimes that it means give it all away in that sense, where it's like everything you enjoy in life, get rid of it because it's hard and we're meant to like follow Jesus and ugh. No, it's not that. It means that if God says to you, stop, you stop and you listen. If God says to you, give it away, you give it away without hesitation. If God says to you, just enjoy it, you enjoy it. That's the reality of it. So submitting it. And we, I, I, just, I wrote a little list of things we can submit to God. And it's like the big stuff to the little stuff. It's our time, it's our attention, our careers, our finances, our retirement, our hobbies, our sexuality, our family, our friends, our incessant TV watching, our aimless Facebook scrolling, our instant online shopping, our constant sports scores checking, our one too many social drinking, our coffee shop gossiping, internet history erasing, 100%, nothing off limits, no holds barred, you can have it all everything. That's what God wants. He wants every area of your life. And as he comes in, he will shine light into those dark places in your heart and reveal where it's divided and and doesn't desire him completely. And why do I say all that? Because I realize I need him more than I need anything else. I need an experience of him. I need a relationship with him. I need the knowledge of him. I need him completely, obsessively, Jesus. That's it. There's this guy you might have heard of. uh, He was called Jesus. And he said, what good is it to gain the whole world but lose your soul? What good is it to gain the whole world but lose your soul? And I fear that that is a very, very real possibility for a lot of us here and a lot of the people we know, that by all measures of success in the modern world, we have it all. But we've lost our soul. And it starts with that rubbing of the salt on our lips that our souls might thirst for him. And I think God is calling us to that pursuit of him right now. And I think that he's asking it of us individually. I think he's asking of it corporately as a church. 
And our hope and I pray that he's doing it more widely than that, that it's not just confined to the people in this building at the moment, that it is reaching way out and beyond because we desperately need him. One more quote from Tozer as I finish. It says, To have found God and still pursue him is the soul's paradox of love, scorned indeed by the too easily satisfied religionist, but justified in happy experience by the children of the burning heart. I'm going to pray for us real quick so I can hear the kids outside. Father God, come to us now, I pray. Holy Spirit, would you come? Set our hearts alight that we might be children of the burning heart, where our souls thirst for you, that our hearts pursue you with an undivided desire. Heal us where we're broken. Release us where we're held captive. And Holy Spirit, we just ask for that pure joy of knowing you more closely. In your holy name, amen.